0: Hey guys, we've been traveling through the scriptures uh, together, kind of the storyline of the Bible following that scarlet thread of redemption, and we have finally arrived. Guys, we're finally here. We finally arrived at the New Testament, sort of, all right? Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at some prophecies and promises about the Messiah, who He is And what he would usher in by his appearing. These are promises of the new covenant from which we get the word New Testament. Okay, this week we're going to look at Isaiah 52 to 55. That's what you'll be reading. And uh, with these promises... Finally, with these promises, God breaks the cycle of sin and failure that we've been tracking for the last 24 weeks. And so singing and rejoicing seems to be the proper response. We read in Isaiah 54, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations. Don't hold back. God is about to grow your family exponentially, so prepare yourselves. Like, add a couple rooms to your house, because the nations of the world are about to be blessed in the offspring of Abraham. So send out the invitation, guys, because everybody is invited. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Everyone is invited. Everyone gets in the same way, and everyone can meet the requirement. So spread the word. God accepts the unacceptable. That is the radical and the offensive message of the cross. God accepts the unacceptable. That's a message worth sharing. That's why in Isaiah 52 it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Get in on the celebration. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Finally, it's here. The true and better exodus. Like as we are delivered decisively by God himself from the slavery of sin. But how? Like how is this possible? Like who will win this victory for us? Because we know the history of the Old Testament. No one was found worthy. So who will do it? Well, we read in our passage that we'll be studying this morning these words. Isaiah 52, 13 says, Behold my Servant like those opening words to this passage this song of the servant are what we will be doing for the rest of eternity. Like for the rest of eternity, we will be holding the face of Christ. Like we will be taking him in. We will not want to turn away from what we see there. We will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so can I just say, if you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible... This is why we take the Bible seriously. The passage that we're going to be studying is why we take the Bible even literally because 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Isaiah wrote about him in such detail that if you did not know it, you would think that this was written by one of his own apostles. One scholar said that this passage looks as if it was written from the very foot of the cross of Christ. And St. Jerome wrote of this in the fourth century. He said, Isaiah should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that one would think that he was composing a history of what has already happened rather than prophesying about what was to come. And so the passage begins, behold my servant. And here God is showing off his son. Look at Jesus. Look at my son, Look at what he will do for those who do not love us. Look what he will accomplish for those who have not sought us. Look what he will do to bring those who are unacceptable into his presence. Like Isaiah is about to answer what I hope for you as a Bible reader through the Old Testament is the question of all questions. Like this is the question of all questions asked by people who are self-aware, who understand their sinfulness, who understand their unworthiness, who aren't playing games with God. The question of questions is this, how can the promises of God come true for guilty people? Like how is that even possible? How can God accept the unacceptable? Like how can the blessing of God come to people who only deserve the wrath of God? Like Isaiah explains in this Song of the Servant in five stanzas of three verses each where he tells us how God makes the forgiveness of sins possible. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Like these are escalating statements. They go from high to higher to highest. Like he is high, he is lifted up, and he is exalted. This is a phrase reserved by Isaiah in his book for Yahweh alone. And so from the very first verse, you get an idea of the identity of the servant of God some way in a way that we cannot even grasp. This is God himself acting as the servant of Yahweh. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, it says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Note the sudden shift. Like the servant goes from being exalted to being something from which people shrink back in horror. In fact, the Hebrew word used here for astonished is never used in the Old Testament as a positive reaction to anything. In fact, it could be better translated appalled. As many as were appalled at you are devastated or petrified. It conveys the idea of horror. Martin Luther wrote of this word. He says it describes the posture of one about to vomit. It's one that's full of revulsion. Why? Because this servant that they look upon, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. When you read the Gospels, have you noticed? It doesn't give the gory details, does it? It says they crucified Jesus, but they don't explain how and what that meant. They scourged him, but it doesn't give us the details. The Gospels don't include these, but Isaiah does. And then Isaiah actually connects how repulsive Jesus became in suffering for us with how effective he was in purifying us. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so as a result of this shall he sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle is the same word used in Leviticus 14 and 16 and Numbers 8 of the priests sprinkling the altar, sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on those who come. Like the blood of Jesus covers us and cleanses us. And as a result, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This is a picture of the nations, like taking in Messiah, things that had never been conveyed to them. They're blown away when they get it, when God opens up their eyes and their minds and their hearts to realize who this person is. That the servant was exalted and repulsive. He was exalted and repulsive. In fact, I would say the servant was exalted because he was repulsive. I mean, that's how Paul writes in his own song in Philippians 2, where he says that he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because of his death, because of his sacrifice, Because of his humility, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. But who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I'm sharing a message, Isaiah's writing, that people just don't get. Like I'm, the message is going out and they're not responding. They just don't understand it. I mean, just a few verses earlier, he said that the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations. And now he says, are you ready to see it? Like, are you ready to see the arm of the Lord that that phrase used throughout the Old Testament to communicate the strength of God and the power of God in salvation it's the arm of the Lord that is bared that rescues his people from bondage in Egypt that rescues them from the hands of the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians are you ready to see the arm of the Lord for he grew up before him like a young plant And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is the arm of the Lord. See, the truth is, the reality is, all of us, every one of us, judge people by their outward appearance, don't we? Whether they're worthy or unworthy, whether they're cool or uncool, whether they're in our club or not. Every one of us judge others by their outward appearance. That's what social media is all about. That's why we lie so much about who we are. I mean, every one of us is judgmental. Usually the most judgmental among us are the ones who condemn the other judgmental people, right? I mean, that's who we are. We judge by outward appearance. All of us are like Samuel at the household of Jesse, calling the sons forward and seeing which one will be anointed the next king of Israel and naturally going to the tallest and the oldest and the one who looks kingly, not knowing there's some scruffy kid in the field still watching sheep that God has already chosen for himself. But see, the servant... It says, he was despised and rejected by men because we judge by outward appearance. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom they, men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The servant was rejected. Historically, the reality is that Jesus was not the Messiah the people were looking for. They were expecting this conquering king they skipped Isaiah 53 and went to Isaiah 66. And they assumed that when he came, he would cast out the Romans. Like that he would like, make Jerusalem like the starring city in the world again. And all the nations would come in and worship him. They didn't see the suffering servant. They saw the victorious servant. Servant, This was not the Messiah they were looking for, and it was not the Messiah they wanted, especially the religious leaders of his day. They wanted somebody who would come in and affirm what they were already doing, kind of like, hey, good job, guys. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really expect y'all to get the world in such great shape for me to just appear. Way to go. Way to be faithful to the law. Keeping up the sacrifices, doing everything right, letting people feel really bad about themselves. Good job, like, but Jesus was not the Messiah that they wanted and, because Jesus was ordinary. He was common, he was human. And so why, like, why is that? Why did the servant of the Lord empty himself as we see in Philippians 2? Though being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but he emptied himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, why? Well, he became like us, so we might become like him. That's the whole purpose of the incarnation. That's the whole purpose of the sacrifice of Christ because, guys, what made us becoming like him possible is that a price had to be paid. Justice had to be satisfied. The New Testament puts it this way. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what Paul writes in about 60 AD. But 760 years earlier, Isaiah explains it like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So Jesus was a man of sorrows, but those sorrows were not his own. He was carrying our sorrows. He was a man acquainted with grief, but the grief he bore were our griefs. And yet those who witnessed this, who saw it play out, they assumed that his death... (laughs) with him just getting what he deserved. When in fact, Jesus was actually getting what we deserve. Like we assume that he was smitten by God for his sin, but the reality is is that he was smitten by God and afflicted for the sins of his people. Like Jesus was treated like we deserve to be treated. So that for all eternity, we might be treated as how only Jesus deserves to be treated. I mean, this is the essence of what we call substitutionary atonement. Like that Jesus died for us or Jesus died instead of us or Jesus died in our place. Like when I finally got that, when I was an older teenager, like the light came on when I realized that Jesus died instead of me dying, that Jesus died and bore the punishment for the sin, instead of me bearing the punishment for the sin, the cross finally made sense. Our guilt was imputed or charged to Jesus. Like guilt is real. Like you're guilty. Like we all stand guilty before God and it can't just be swept under the rug. It can't just be dismissed out of love for us, God charged the infinite guilt of our sin to this innocent substitute. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, his stripes, are we healed. Does that sound like the New Testament to you? And yet this is written over 700 years before this transpires. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the servant, Messiah, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So behold my servant. Look at him hanging there upon the cross. And what is he saying by his sacrifice? He's saying, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He's saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The servant was sacrificed for our sins. And so, those of you who have been following along with us, say you're 25 weeks into your reading through the Bible. So, you've listened to the sermons. You've been going to a small group or doing the discussion questions on your own. Like you've been reading the passages. Here it is. Finally, we have arrived. Here is the fulfillment of that promise made in the garden. The serpent has been crushed and the offspring has been wounded. Here it is, finally. Here is the true and better arc of deliverance that bores us up from the wrath of God. Here is that bow in the heavens pointed at God Himself. The arrow flies free and it pierces the very heart of God. Here it is, the tower that finally reaches to the heavens. Here it is, that fire and smoke moving through those half pieces of an animal as Abraham watches on and Yahweh himself swears covenant with Abraham and bears the punishment if that covenant is broken. Here is the true and better Sacrifice the true and better day of atonement. We have arrived, and he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is literally fulfilled over 700 years later in the trial of Jesus where he did not defend himself. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away by this mockery of a trial. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Did anyone see what was really happening here? Like as this innocent one, this sinless one dies upon the cross. Did anyone grasp whose sins were really being condemned on that cross? Verse nine, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Considered wicked and yet this once again literally fulfilled over 700 years later when Joseph Of Arimathea, with the help of Nicodemus, asked the priest, the chief priest, for the body of Jesus, and they placed it in Joseph's own tomb. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, this was the world's greatest miscarriage of justice because the servant was innocent. So, what's the point? The point is that, as Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. I could call legions of angels, but I will not. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, literally, what that passage says is that the Lord was pleased to crush him. Like, you've got to wonder how. Like, how is that possible? How could the father find pleasure in crushing his son and bringing him to grief? But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame Yet it was the will of the Lord. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You can't just blame the Romans. You can't just blame the Jews of that day. Like you have to own it yourself. It was our sin and the sovereign plan of God that placed Jesus on the cross. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The resurrection is right here. Like right here. His soul makes an offering for guilt, and yet he gets to see his offspring. How? How does he get to prolong his days? Because God raises him from the dead. And through the spread of the gospel, the family of God, his offspring, are built. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You ever wondered what Jesus felt about the cross? Like when he looks back on it now, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, imputed righteousness, charge righteousness to their account, and he shall bear their iniquities. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He is victorious and he shares that victory with his own because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God forgive them for they know not what they do. Guys, the servant was crushed and victorious. The servant was crushed and victorious. The servant was victorious because he was crushed. Guys, right here, hear this, right here is why believers are unashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. This is why we're unashamed of the gospel because there is nothing else like it in the world. The religions of the world are striving and working and hoping and living and dying with the thought that maybe God might accept them if they've worked hard enough, if they tried hard enough, if they've gotten rid of enough of their sin and they have grabbed hold of enough of his standard for living. And yet, like we go out knocking on doors or just having conversations with people. And we're not selling anything because the price has already been paid in full by the Son of God. The gospel begins on day one, moment one, with everything that every religion in the world hopes to attain. And we're given that as a gift on day one, Moment one, the gospel begins where every religion in the world hopes to end. The promise of heaven, the promise of forgiveness, brought into the family of God, secure forever. If, if you wanted to share this message with someone, like how would you do it? Like you could do it right here, I mean right from this passage. If we had no New Testament, We have right here in this passage, the gospel of God. In fact, I want to show you a a short video of someone sharing this with someone.
1: The whole purpose of the Christian message is to confront the sinner's sin. So you can call the sinner to repentance and forgiveness. The sinner doesn't like that. we, we had a question on the on the little questionnaire that you, your people sent me. It said, do you feel like you might be offending Democrats with some of the things you say? And my response to that is, look, my goal is to offend everyone. <laughs> 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 that is my initial goal, to tell you that you are without God in the world, that there's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, that you're in sin, that... Sin brings death and punishment, but the good news is Jesus Christ is the Savior who has provided a way for you to be forgiven by bearing your sins in His body on the tree so that God's justice is satisfied and His love can be extended to you by putting your trust in Christ. So I, I offend people all the time because that's necessary. Um, if you try to develop a kind of Christianity that's inoffensive, it's not Christianity. It's not the gospel.
2: So I'd be remiss if we didn't actually talk about the differences between Judaism and Christianity because on so much of this stuff we're on the same page, considering that legitimately half of the book is the same. Um, but when it comes to the distinctions between Judaism and Christianity, as a Jew, whenever I hear pastors speak about Christianity, very often I think to myself, right, all that stuff's in the Old Testament. And so when they say things like, you know, sin has to be Cleansed by God, right? We have an entire day, Yom Kippur, that is for that. I say uh, three times a day, a paragraph about uh, doing repentance before God, plus an additional section for repentance in the morning prayers. Uh, the The idea of of repenting and confessing your sins before God is something that that is endemic to Judaism and has been for for thousands of years. Uh, the idea that you know, God is sovereign, obviously, the two religions share philosophically speaking. Put aside and putting aside. The, the basic crux of belief in one story uh, or one historic incident in your interview. If you, if you put that aside, what do you think is the, the key distinguishing factor between the philosophy of Christianity and the philosophy of Judaism?
1: Well, first of all, I don't like to talk about it as a philosophy. Um, I'd rather talk about it as a revelation uh, because it's divine. Um, so the same God who wrote the Old Testament wrote the New Testament. That's my conviction. The scripture has one author, uh, and I need to say this, I am a Christian because of the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, I, I don't know whether I could believe the New Testament. And that may sound strange to you, but how do I know that Jesus is the Messiah if I don't have all the predictions of the Old Testament defining him when he shows up. For example, um, I wrote a book called The Gospel According to God, and um, it's from Isaiah 53, that great chapter. And you read Isaiah 53, and it's, it's the biography of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, um, and it, it's, it lays out his arrival um, and his rejection and his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and his coronation. It explains the gospel in more specific terms than any chapter in the New Testament. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace fell on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Wow, that sounds like the Christian doctrine of justification because that's exactly what it is. And then it says his life was cut off. And then it says he will see his offspring. Well, if his life was cut off, how could he see his offspring? When I die, I'm not going to see my offspring. That's the resurrection. And then you have the coronation. You you even have in that chapter a shift because the chapter begins with the plural, we, um, you know, uh, we saw him and he was like a root out of dry ground. He was like a a, a root sticking up, you would trip over. He was like a sucker branch. You whack it off. He was meaningless, useless. And there was no beauty that we would desire him. He didn't fit our messianic picture. And uh, he, he didn't do what we thought he would do. He didn't knock off the Romans and he didn't set up the kingdom. Um, they, uh, he just didn't fit our model. And so we, we considered him as nothing. And the the language there, they considered him as non-existent. And that's exactly what happened because they completely rejected him and the Romans... And took him as a criminal and crucified him. And then you have this stunning reality in that chapter. It's like time stops, and you hear this in the past tense. He was bruised for our iniquities, he was chastised for our peace. Whoa, what happened? Zechariah says The day will come when they look on him whom they've pierced and mourn for him as an only son. Wow, that's what they will say. That's what the Jewish people will say when they look on the one they pierced and mourn for him as an only son. They'll say, we thought he was stricken by God. We thought we were doing the work of God in taking his life because he was a blasphemer. Now we see he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And then, says Zechariah, a fountain of blessing is open to Israel and a fountain of salvation. And then you have that followed by the kingdom and all the fulfillment of the old covenant. And all of it comes when Israel looks at the Messiah and sees him for who he is. The interesting thing about Isaiah's prophecy of that is he doesn't say it's going to happen. He doesn't use future verbs. He uses past verbs because he's looking past Christ to when the Jews look back on the past. Now we see it. Now we see it. and the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. That is the purpose and plan of God.
0: Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray for Ben Shapiro who hear, heard that message from uh, John MacArthur, Lord, that you would haunt him with it, that your spirit would open his mind and his heart to really grasp the gospel, to really recognize that Jesus is Messiah, and that he would embrace him, and that he would give his life to the Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would go out with that same boldness and confidence that a God who writes history in advance, a God who promises that as the gospel goes out, as the word goes out, it won't return void, but that we'd grow up in that kind of confidence, taking the message of the cross, to those who need to hear it, Lord, that we would preach it to ourselves and rest in it uh, because of what you did for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.